1: Welcome to Destiny. Now here's your host, Cliff Dunning. We have kind of a uh, interesting program today, apropos really when we look at the current events, the news of the planet Earth. And uh, we are going to discuss a, um, a new book that just came out called Occult Russia, Pagan, Esoteric, and Mystical Traditions. And the author has spent a... a considerable amount of time in Russia. And, you know, given the fact that the Russians are trying to uh, take Ukraine and and they are making a mess of things and they're getting some serious pushback, all we can think of right now when we think of Russia is its uh, aggression and its uh, issues and this uh, uh, president-slash-dictator Putin. But there's so much rich history especially when it comes to occult, spiritual traditions, esoteric traditions, and mystical traditions. And this is what we're going to cover today. Now, if you're not familiar with some of the, the uh, names that come out of Russia, think of uh, Helena or uh, Madame Blavatsky, Rasputin, uh, Gurdjieff. These are all very well-known individuals who arrived at the turn of the century And then when uh, the revolution came, Stalin came into power in 1924, most of the intellectuals, most of the spiritual community left and went to other parts of the the planet. Some of them went to the United States, some of them went to Europe. And after the revolution, they left their impression on the citizens as well as a a lot of uh, other people around the, the, the planet. One of the fascinating things about Russia and something that I've always noted is that the scientific community is much more open and much more transparent about uh, areas that I've always been fascinated in, other planets, uh, solar system, UFO-alien interaction. As a quick side note, it was uh, two noted Russian scientists that uh, were part of a space program that sent two satellites to the Mars moon, known as Phobos. And one of them didn't come back. It was destroyed or crashed into the planet, uh, into the moon. And the other one imaged a great deal of, of Phobos. And the analysis that these uh, scientists uh, responded to and actually divulged uh, to the world was that Phobos, in their uh, estimation, was artificial, number one. It was hollow. And that it was changing its trajectory. And this was, oh God, this is like 20 years ago. And I remember them saying this and talking about it. And when they said that, they also released documents and photographs of the surface of, uh, of Phobos and they imaged a bunch of what can only be considered monoliths, large towers, stone look like stone towers on the surface. Some as uh, as tall as a half mile in height. Uh, and so, th- you know, you, we would never ever think of this in the United States. Your scientists at NASA would never ever divulge this. And so, it's always been a curiosity, a curiosity of mine, why. They would be so open and transparent with their information uh, and psychic phenomena. Now, the Soviet Union, uh, excuse me, the Russians were very much into psychic phenomena uh, much much earlier than we were in the United States and in, in and in Europe. And they actually, uh, I mean, these are physicists and. Uh, other types of sciences were actually looking at the results of psychic awareness, uh, telekinesis, uh, all types of psychic phenomenon that was very interesting to to us, <laughs> but wasn't really covered by our scientific community because it was considered too, too far out of, of bounds. And, you know, I've I've always been appreciative of the scientific community of Russia because they are not like I said before they're transparent but they're also willing to speak their mind and the governmental body seems to be much more flexible when it comes to research and development. Now there was a whole and there still continues to be a scientific community behind the pyramid phenomenon. And uh, a a few years ago, we had a couple of people from Russia speak on the government funding actual pyramids being built. These are small pyramids, maybe 70 feet, 80 feet high. But a whole body of uh, scientists were uh, looking at the phenomenon within the pyramids. And they showed that the pyramid structure preserved food and fruits and had an effect on the, the human physiology, and they actually did some very serious studies on this, stuff that we would never, ever, ever consider. So our program today is going to cover not only the scientific community, but also what everyday people are focused on. The, the spiritual traditions that were handed down by Gurdjieff and Blavatsky, and the new faces that are looking at phenomena like uh, psychic awareness and uh, paganism, kind of a, what I would consider kind of a new age, a growing new age movement in Russia. Now, I want to mention something that uh, I was interacting with a few years ago. I got a series of photographs from a uh, researcher. I, I don't remember his name, and it was um, photographs of what looked like. Well, I mean, they, they were they were photographs of uh, megaliths in a region of Russia, interior Russia, known as the Kola Peninsula, and this area. Was kind of known by the locals, uh, but what was unique about Kola is that these were megaliths. There were dolmen in the area, stones weighing several tons uh, that were stacked in walls and made up of wa- made walls. They made foundations, and this was a city. The speculation that is that they were there was a city. They at the time, and I'm talking about a decade ago. At the time, uh, they did a basic survey and they estimated that what we were looking at and what the photographs were sending us uh, were a civic area, a central civic area that su- perhaps supported a government or some form of uh, ruling body. And I was fascinated by it. I mean, it was something that was somewhat similar to what we see at Cusco, these megalithic stone walls at Sacsayhuaman, or even they even had some stonework that was kind of similar to Machu Picchu, uh, but not as not as clean, not as uh, not not as not the same as the buildings that we see in Machu Picchu. But this Cola Peninsula was a fascination of mine, and I was really ready to you know. Work with whoever came out with the material to make some kind of a help them make it some kind of a, 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 an announcement about it. Nothing ever showed. Nothing ever came of it, and we didn't really know exactly where it was in the Kola Peninsula because it's 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 a forestry a forest area. It was deep, deep, deep in the mountains. I think it took like two days to get to it. On foot, uh, there were no known trails, and uh, just a fascinating uh, discovery. Now you got to remember, this, the former Soviet Union, uh, current Russia, is a monstrous country. It's 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 huge. You can fit uh, uh, <laughs> the whole European Union in it. You can fit uh, you know India and portions of the United States, and it. it's huge, huge. So there is a lot of area we just don't know about, and there's a lot of speculation that there's evidence of lost civilizations there. So we'll be talking a little bit about that today as well. Uh, an area known as Hyperborea, or the, which is another term for kind of a Russian Atlantis, that that we've heard about through the grapevine, through rumors and things like that. So interesting program today, and something to consider. Given all the problems we're dealing with, Russia's uh, desire to occupy Ukraine, the Ukraine. So, the program today is Occult Russia Pagan, Esoteric, and Mystical Traditions. My guest is Christopher McIntosh. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. is in the news these days of course it's the uh, Russians trying to take Ukraine and Ukraine is resisting and so we hear a great deal about what is considered uh Russia's annexing of, of uh portions of uh Ukraine uh, Ukraine is resisting but you know we're going to move beyond that today <clears throat> with our topic and Uh, My guest today has done some serious research on not only early personal growth, spiritual and occult practices in Russia, but also (laughs) the post and and pre-revolution material that has come out. There are a number of well-known individuals who have uh, come out of Russia left their impression on the world. And uh, we want to not only look at their past, but we also want to see what is going on with Russia today. My guest today is Christopher McIntosh. He has written an amazing book called Occult Russia, Pagan, Esoteric, and Mystical Traditions. And this is a look at the undercurrent of the population and their interest in traditional Occultism, uh, as well as kind of a new movement that we'll hear about today. So, hey, Christopher, welcome to Destiny. Great, great to have you on the program. Thank you for inviting me. I, I should say that you are a you have a doctorate from in history from Oxford University and a, a diploma in Russian. So, do you speak uh, Russian? I uh, have a little uh, bit of Russian accent, or <laughs> what, what? What? How, how do you? Uh, when you say you have a you have a uh, a diploma is that a language diploma
0: or what it's a language diploma from the, the from the united nations language school in new york oh interesting yeah from the time when i was working for the un oh so you were a diplomat no i wasn't actually a diplomat i was um working as an inf- information officer and um i was editor of a magazine about Development in the Third World for the United Nations Development Program.
1: Okay, fascinating. Mm. What's the interest in in Russia? You you have written a fascinating book here. I should say the subtitle is Pagan, Esoteric, and Mystical Traditions. That is something I didn't know about. We know about Blavatsky. We know about Rasputin and Gershiv, mm. uh from p- uh, pre-revolution. But what is you, what was the spark behind this book? This book is not a, a simple read. You actually dig up quite a bit of pre-movement and then mm. the move, movement itself, This I'm going to call it a, uh, a New Age movement in, in Russia, and then kind of a, a look at it currently. What was, uh, I mean, were you there visiting and you fell on to uh, a community of, of, uh, of pagans or <laughs> what? Well,
0: I, I've been fascinated by Russia for a long time, mm-hmm. and um, I've been there a couple of times. And um, what uh, really prompted me to write the book was, before I wrote this book on Russia, I wrote another book called Beyond the North Wind, *Myths of Hyperborea, the promised land in the far north that was supposed to have existed somewhere in the region of, of the North Pole thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. And I discovered that this mystique is very strong in Russia, that the Russians have a fascination with this mystique of the north and of and of Hyperborea. And they, there was uh, a certain group of people in Russia who, came to think of themselves or came to think of the russians as the descendants of the hyperboreans and the, the inheritors the inheritors of the hyperborean civilization
1: mm-hmm.
0: so there are there is for example a whole school of painting in russia where artists are painting these extraordinary visionary scenes of hyper, of a hyperborean environment with people traveling around on sleighs pulled by mammoths and uh, extraordinary uh, ports, Hyperborean ports with um, strange ships and even even, uh, polar scenes with spaceships having landed. So there's this this very strong mystique of of Hyperborea. So I started to investigate that and that, that led me on to realize that and especially since the fall of communism there is now a great spiritual search going on because the the communist period left behind a vacuum a a tremendous hunger for spiritual nourishment and so people are people are looking in many different directions to satisfy that hunger Hmm. Many uh, thousands of people are going to the Orthodox Church or or returning to the Orthodox Church, Mm -hmm. which is uh, enjoying a great upsurge uh, right now. Um, But they're also looking in other directions. They're looking uh, to sort of um, alternative forms of spirituality like, like Theosophy, the Gurdjieff Movement, and so on, but also to the pre-Christian pagan traditions of the Slavic people. So this, all, all this is going on, and um, this is really what the book is about. It's a survey
1: of all these things. I, I'm curious. I've always felt that the Russian people, and this includes the scientists, hmm. were more open to a uh, phenomenon like psychic awareness uh spiritual phenomena uh even even the ufo alien question there i mean we're talking about serious scientists who oh, seem yeah. to be much more open uh, culturally than the rest of the of the world why is that That's perfectly true there's uh, much more
0: of an interface between science and what you might call the, the domain of, of spirituality. It's, it's, it's partly because the, the concept of science is more widely, more broadly defined than it, than it is in most Western countries. So, yes, as you, as you say, there's um, a lot of interface between the world of science and the world of parapsychology and also, there are scientists who are working with the shamans in, um, the shamans in the, in Siberia. And the, the, the techniques that shamans have, have developed, for, for example, for dealing with psychological problems.
1: Hmm. Can you give us an example of, uh, a, a, sh- a shamanistic, um, uh therapy for for a problem that i mean because i i didn't know this this is kind of fascinating
0: well there there was um a woman doctor
1: uh i think she she's
0: called dr kar karitidi i think she subsequently emigrated to the states but she was working with psychiatric patients and she had one patient one woman patient who was a severe schizophrenic, to the extent where she was unable to lead a normal life, a, a female shaman in Siberia, who was oh, dealing with similar problems, and she had a, a method of dealing with with uh, psychological problems like schizophrenia, and this 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 woman doctor learned this technique from the, the woman shaman, and applied it to her patient. And it was extremely effective to, to the point where this patient was able to return home and take up a, a, a normal life in society. Mm-hmm. So, so that, 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 that would be one example.
1: Yeah. Um, back to the point of the openness of scientists, I find it really, really refreshing uh mm-hmm. that these major in some cases Nobel laureates and uh you know uh very very well known physicists and other scientists are having conversations which with uh, uh on topics that would be uh off limits or undesirable yeah. by western scientists
0: yeah yeah and
1: and 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 it's fascinating because uh, uh years ago not that long ago, uh, the whole like the psychic phenomenon, being able to uh, predict events or uh, the various phenomenon around the psychic realm, uh, yeah. was studied in depth in Russia. Yeah, and and actually, serious papers were published on the mind's ability to to uh, to do certain things. Yeah, and, that's right. And and in the West, it's just like. We don't bother with that, and, and and it's like we're missing so much. That's right. That's by not right. having that, talk a little bit about this um, event, this this willingness to really step out of what we consider traditional science. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, well, there are some exceptions in the West, like Rupert Sheldrake, the, the British scientist Rupert Sheldrake. Yes who um, came up with a theory of um, what he calls the morphogenetic field, which is sort of a, 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 a etheric field on which things are recorded, which thoughts and, and so on are recorded. Um, the, the, the Russians have had this concept for, for a very long time. It's the, the idea that If you're a scientist, it's not enough to examine something as though it it were in a glass retort from which you're separated. You you are linked with what you're observing because this great field of of consciousness. And um, there's some very interesting work going on at an scientific establishment in Novosibirsk. It's, it's called something like the Institute for Cosmoplanetary Anthro- Anthropoecology or something, something like that. And they're doing very interesting work. For example, they've developed a device that they call the COSIREF mirror, which is a cylinder of uh, usually aluminium Shiny, shiny aluminium. And if you have two of these things separated even by thousands of miles, uh, and a person placed in each one, that they're able to communicate telepathically. And people have had all, all kinds of amazing revelations in these Kozarev mirrors. mm mm-hmm. So there's some there's very fascinating research going on.
1: Yeah, and it's it's uh, challenging because uh, Sheldrick uh, uh, has written and presented some very, very important material, but uh, the, his peers have shot him down. He actually did a, a very well-known Ted, TEDx talk that was removed. Oh, uh, because he uh, was questioning scientific uh, the scientific method, yeah. uh, and and so forth and so on, and, and it's just it's so refreshing to see this. Now you write in this book about the uh, the pre-revolution period, and the inter- yes. and you introduce uh, Hel- Helena Blavatsky, uh, Gergov, and, and and many others. Are these individuals coming back into vogue right now in Russia? Because, I mean, look, the people are repressed in many ways. We have, you have a, almost a dictatorship in uh, Russia where, uh, it, it, it's, uh, you know, there's no, there's no say. So I'm getting the sense that what you're writing about is an, is an undercurrent of, uh, of this uh spirituality this personal growth uh, uh phenomenon this this community talk a little bit about that well I,
0: I don't have the impression that it's underground if if there is censorship going on it's not directed at esoteric movements or alternative spiritual movements and that sort of thing that's all that's all pretty much out in the open, and um, theosophy about about Madame Babatsky, Gurdjieff, Crowley, all kinds of things, and there is there's a tremendous growth in 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 these kinds of ideas and movements. I, I would say it's it's partly the import of esoteric ideas from the West, like uh, f- for example, there's a number of followers of uh, Crowley. Oh, Al- uh, Al- Al- Alistair Crowley, yeah. Al- Alistair Crowley, yes. Um, there are follow- there are followers of Rudolf Steiner, for example. Anthroposophy is quite strong in Russia, so that's that's one stream. The, but the other stream is looking to Russian sources like the, for example, the Rurik movement, Nikolai Rurik. Nikolai Rurik um, and his wife Helena were theosophists who became fascinated by the the notion of Shambhala, Shambhala, which was a a sort of remote kingdom somewhere in in the Himalayas. Right. and uh, Helena Rurik channeled a whole whole series of messages from one of the, the, one of the masters of theosophy. It was called Moria. And there's a whole Rurik movement in, in Russia today.
1: Hmm. Uh,
0: other, other people are turning to the pre-Christian pagan traditions.
1: So talk a little bit about uh prior to the revolution, which would be you see, Stalin comes on the scene in nineteen twenty-four. Yes. Uh, and we have Blavatsky, we have uh Rasputin, we have Gurdjieff. Uh what do we what do we see in the society? Of course, there's you know, people left the country when the revolutionaries started. Uh Stalin murdered you know millions of people. Yeah. But Mm. what what was it like there? And tell us about what foundation of these key individuals who actually influenced the West uh, significantly Mm. uh, when they actually uh, emigrated away from Russia. Mm. Well, uh,
0: the the Russian diaspora was uh, obviously but also obviously made a, a great contribution in the West. And part of, part of the diaspora was um, uh, artists, writers, philosophers who emigrated at the time of the revolution. And in fact, instead of having them all murdered, he simply put them on a ship and uh, sent them out of the country the, the the philosopher's steamer, it, it was called. One one of one of them was the, the writer Berdyaev, a, a Russian mystical writer. So this was a, a this was the West's gain, but it was an impo- impoverishment for Russia. Mm-hmm. But but uh, even after the revolution, there was quite a lot going on in in the esoteric domain, a a lot of people actually placed great hopes in the revolution and even even, uh, fought on the the side of the Red Army. There was, for, for example, the film director, Eisenstein, Sergei Eisenstein who was actually a member of a a Rosicrucian group, Rosicrucian Lodge, which I I found very surprising when I discovered this because Eisenstein is not the sort of person you'd associate with with an esoteric lodge of that kind, Uh, having having come to fame as Alexander Nevsky and so on. But there's a picture of him in his red army uniform with a group of other members of this rosicrucian lodge mm. and there were there were um, other rosicrucian groups and es- esoteric groups of all kinds right uh, up to basically up to the advent of stalin and even a even a, a bit after that but then when this the stalinist regime really Got going, the Stalinist terror. The um, all, all of these groups and movements were were crushed. Mm-hmm. So, so by by the end of the, the war, there was virtually nothing left of that whole that whole esoteric scene. They, they, they'd all either been killed or gone underground. Right. Um, but um, then things gradually started to ease up under Khrushchev. Khrushchev and um these uh, these movements started to come up again, and you know at, f- at first rather cautious but more and more and then after the advent of gorbachev and per- Perestroika, they they really took off mm-hmm. and well they've they've never looked back.
1: Yeah, which is very interesting because uh we, we don't hear a great deal about key figures in Russia at this time. Mm. Uh and maybe that's a benefit to those individuals who may be out there. Mm. Um but one of the things I want to talk about is the uh revivalist period, which is going on right now, and maybe he have been maybe he's been going on for Couple of decades, Chronicle of the Slavic People. It's the book of Vels. V- I'm not. He- what Veles. I'm sorry. Yeah, I've never, I, I've never heard of this, but it's like um, uh, talk a little bit about it. Some wooden planks were found in 1918, yeah. and and translated, and apparently it talks about the story of the Slavic people. G- give us, you know, the yeah. thing that's interesting is I, I looked it up in Wik- Wikipedia and they believe and they write that it's a forgery it's it's a fake uh, you know yeah. this is one of these things that is uh uh not condoned i guess you can say as a, as a as a real document but talk a little bit about this uh this well, book
0: yeah well it, it's a very interesting story there was a man called eisenbeck who was a colonel in the white army during the Civil War, and at one point he and his troop came across a country house. I forget exactly where it was, but it had been more or less vandalized, but written on wooden boards in a curious sort of script that was a bit like a bit like a runic script and also a bit like old slavonic and he took this he took this book and took it away took it away with him and then after the victor, after the victory of the bolsheviks in the civil war he ended up in living in i, th- I think uh, belgrade spent some time in Belgrade, and then he ended up in the Russian expatriate community in Brussels. And there he met another expatriate Russian called Miral Yubov. And Miral became very intrigued by this book, and Isenbeck allowed him to make a transcription and a translation of it which took, took a very long time because he Milo-Lyubov was only allowed access to it for very short intervals. So it took about 15 years. Well, then, to cut a long story short, the, the text ended up being published in a Russian expatriate journal in California hmm. called J- 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 Jar Butitsa, The Firebird, and became a bestseller in Russia. Well, as you say, there's a debate about whether it's genuine or not. A lot of people think it, it's a forgery. There there are some things that seem to indicate that it is a forgery. There's, there are strange kind of inconsistencies and, and, and anachronisms in, in the text. Hmm. But at, at the same time, there are other things that seem to indicate that it might be might be genuine, or, or perhaps parts of it might be genuine.
1: Can you give us kind of an idea? I mean, because it's uh, apparently, I read this from your book here, Chronicles of the Slavic People. Is it the, is it kind of the history of the Slavs and and where yes. they came from and some of the key figures, or yes. is, it, is there some spiritual aspect that is uh, the body of this uh, of this well, book? Well, it's it's a kind of epic. Store epic story
0: of the early Slavic. Uh, so it's a story of um, sort of migrations and struggles of the the early Slavic people, combined with a lot about their gods. Right. So the, the, so so the god Velis is sort of the equivalent of Pan. He's a he's a kind of nature god. So. The, the Russians became very enthused or quite a large number of people became very enthused by this book because it was a, it was an affirmation of their early history it, it seemed to open up a whole perspective on their early early history and the the uh, uh, old pagan gods and so on so it's it's remained a bestseller in russia
1: and would you say the reason that it's so popular is that uh and also that it, people believe in the actual story is that it is a foundation, something that they can be proud of or is it that this is their it's the root their roots of their culture?
0: Yeah, I think I think it's it, it's both. It's something it, it is they see it as their their deep roots as a people. Hmm. The, the, the thing is that they the the, the Russians are um, they, they, they they're always asking themselves, who are we? Where do we come from? Who are our ancestors? For, for example, there's a there's a long debate about whether they're basically a Slavic people or whether their their origin is basically Germanic, because the f- the founders of the the original dynasty, the Rus dynasty, were Vikings who came down from the north and sailed down one of the rivers into Russia, and founded first the city of Novgorod, and then they went further south and they founded Kiev. And their leader was a Rurik, a Viking, a Viking called Rurik, and. He founded the, 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 Rus dynasty. That's why it's called, that's why it's called Russia. But what, 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 what makes it ironic in, in, in the light of the present conflict is that Kiev was actually the cradle of, of Russia. That's where the, that's where the Rus dynasty came from.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, um, they're, they're partly, they have partly this Viking element, but Partly, partly the Slavic element for about two and a half centuries from the, uh, 13th to the 15th century. So they're, they're a great mixture of many different uh, nationalities, ethnic groups, language groups, uh, religions and, and so on. Hmm. Fast this, this is, this is, this is what one of, this is, this, this is, partly what makes the Russians different. That, that it's, it, it's why they're they, they partly, partly European, partly Asian. Right. And um, I think that's that's why uh, it's difficult for, for, for Western Europeans to understand them.
1: We're going to take a short commercial break, and then we will return with Chris McIntosh and his new book, occult russia we'll be right back My guest today is Chris McIntosh and he's written a book on Russia called Occult Russia: Pagan, Esoteric, and Mystical Traditions. This is a look at a growing movement of paganism and other occult practices as well as a scientific community that is very very unusual. I like that though. That's a good very good point. They're they're part european but part asian yes and there's no place like that in the world we're talking about a monstrous country oh yes yes well, and and these yeah. are uh, people who have interbred and yeah. you get f- cultural flavors from asia and you get a yes. little a little european and then you this is the russians that you're you're referring to yeah. uh, which which i we don't we don't consider here in the West. We are like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, the problem with Russia is so much of their culture is repressed uh, because of their, their political system. Mm. And, you know, if, if you speak out, you know, it's not, uh, it's frowned upon to speak out, which leads me to my next question, um, Chris, which is Mm. you're suggesting a modern Russian spiritual esoteric Renaissance
0: yeah. Right. Mm. Yeah. So, w-
1: talk a little bit about that. Is that what I would? Is that comp- something like uh, resurrecting the old pagan gods? Is that Wicca, which is like witches and warlocks that we see in Europe and we see here in the United States? Talk a little bit about what this esoteric uh, uh, Renaissance is and and why. I mean, it's obvious that we don't know about it. That's why you wrote the book because here in the West we're like. What are you talking about Chris? we don't <laughs> no no one, there's no noted authors that are mm. stepping into Western culture and writing in the 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 major magazines like Atlantic and like Rolling Stone and like so we don't mm. know you know there is for example, a movement called the
0: Anastasia movement. Have you come across this at all?
1: I've heard yeah. of the Anastasia uh there's some small talk about it but I don't remember specifically uh, as to w- what their uh what they do
0: Well well this is this is quite big in the West actually Um it's an interesting story there was there, there is a Russian former businessman called Megler Vlad, Vladimir Megler who was on a business trip down the river Ob in Siberia, in a ship. And at one point he stopped in a village, and there he met a woman called Anastasia. She took him off to this cave where he spent several days with her, during which time she revealed to him a whole teaching about basically how human beings can live a better and more harmonious life in, in greater harmony with nature and so on. Mm. And he then went back to Moscow where he came from and wrote a book about what she taught him. And this was the first in a series of books about this Anastasia. And it became a bestseller. So he gave up his business career, devoted himself to building up a whole movement around her teaching. And it centers around the idea of homesteads of, I think, two hectares each, which is apparently what you need to be self-sufficient. And these homesteads are grouped into communities like like villages and there's there's a community, sort of a community government and philosophy about how to... Raise a family, how to practice uh, environment-friendly agriculture, and so on. And this is this. These Anastasia books have been translated into many many languages, and Anastasia settlements have now been set, have now been established in many many different countries. Wow. I've I've talked to talked to some people. I talk. I was talking on the phone to a woman in Australia who was practicing the Anastasia method, so to speak.
1: Is it is it a way to live according to the Earth's like Gaia? So, in other words, this Anastasia was like living in harmony with Planet Earth, or is there more to it?
0: Well, I, I think I, I think there's 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 more. There is more to it. Yes. There's, there is more to it than, than that there is a, there's a kind of um, m- sort of myst- mystical um, belief that goes with it but because the question is whether whether it's whether anastasia really exists I mean a lot of people have treated it as a as a work of fiction <laughs> as a fiction so the question is does she does she exist? <laughs> she's she's never she's never he's never actually produced her. So does she exist? Or is it, was it, did he make it all up or, or what? And my I I tend to think that she is a kind of egregore, people thinking the same thoughts and focusing on the same ideas. And these these egregors are particularly strong in russia and one of them is a figure called the the woman clothed with the sun this goes, goes goes back to the book of revelation where there's mention of a a woman clothed with the sun who's going to give birth to a savior and this egregore of the woman clothed with the sun cro- crops up again and again in different forms for example in the form of the figure of Mother Russia, Mother Russia, who was invoked during the war as a way of mobilizing the Russian people against the German invasion. And there were posters that appeared everywhere saying Mother Russia calls, showing this heroic woman figure brandishing, brandishing
1: a sword. I've seen it before, yeah. <laughs> You've seen that? Yes. I've seen it, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, and she she appears also in the figure of of the sophia the sophia who's the female aspect of the logos who's very important in the orthodox church and there's a whole mystic mystic whole mysticism around around sophia anyway i think that possibly anastasia is another manifestation of this egregore and that he that in a way plugged into Plugged into her, and possi- possibly, possibly, in, in a way, channeled this information. Possib- possibly, she she even appeared to him as a as a flesh and blood, as an apparently flesh and blood woman. And he then he then channeled this this whole teaching from her. I think that's that's possible.
1: So that she was more of a etheric being that incarnated or not maybe incarnated became uh, visible enough for him to see her. And then she passed on the teachings part orally and then part through some other transmission. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's possible. Fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, In your book, uh, Chris, you you have a number of individuals that you highlight as uh, uh, coming directly from Russian culture. I want you to talk about uh, an individual. His name is Count Sergei uh, Vronsky, who is apparently uh, the Russian Nostradamus. Talk, talk a little bit about him. He sounds fascinating.
0: Yeah, Vronsky. That's that's a very very interesting story. He was of uh, noble parentage. He. Grew up in the early in the early years of the revolution, and at one point, his his father his father was a, was an expert on military codes, and his father wanted to emigrate from Russia, and had, had actually received permission from Lenin to do so, and the family were just about to leave. When the Ogpu secret police arrived and, and murdered everyone, murdered the whole family, except for Bronsky, who happened to be out for a walk with his with his nanny, with his, his French, his French governess. And so he escaped the the murder. And he then I forget his exact movements after that. I think he ended up he, he lived for a time with a grandmother. Then he, I, 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 I forget, forgotten the exact stages, but he, he, as a, as a young man, he went to Germany to, or to Austria. He he, he went to an aviation school in Austria. And oh yes, um, this 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 grandmother was very well versed in astrology and magic and, and things of that sort. So so he became. He became an, an astrologer, very, very skilled in in things of that sort. Mm-hmm. Then he he went to Austria, he went to this aviation school in Austria, and then to Germany. So he was in Germany at the time of the Nazi period, and he became friendly with Rudolf Hess, who was also interested in astrology. And Rudolf Hess, the Nazi. Yes. Yes. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. A, a, a kind of secret think tank in Berlin, where all kinds of occultists and esotericists were working uh, uh, as, as astrologers and um, people working with pendulums and all kinds of things like that. Anyway, he was he was involved with this for a time, and. Then the the war started, and there was the Hess flight to England to to, to Scotland. After which there was a, a big action against astrologers, and most of them were arrested and put in concentration camps. So he decided that it was time to leave. So he he managed to get to an airfield in somewhere in one of the Baltic countries, and get hold of a plane and fly over the border into Russia. But the plane was shot down and and crashed, and uh, he was dragged out of this plane, very heavily injured, operated on by a surgeon who managed to save his life. And then he, for a time, he was 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 imprisoned in, in the Gulag, then hmm. eventually, eventually, he was let out. Well, to, to cut a long story short, he ended up living in Moscow and practicing as an astrologer, and he he became quite well known. And he was casting horoscopes for the the um, communist hierarchy. So that's that's his his story. There's there's an interesting interview.
1: What here. what are some of the big predict? I mean, because when you say Nostradamus, Nostradamus. You know uh predicted events uh, hundreds of years following his death yeah uh, what was uh, uh ronsky's uh maybe one or two of his big uh premonitions, predictions, uh, prophecy, whatever you want to call it
0: well well one
1: one was when he was when he was with
0: with Hess casting horoscopes, they did a, a horoscope for the invasion of Russia. Oh and, boy! Yeah, and um, the message was quite clear that it would be a disaster for Germany, which, wow. of course, which of course it was.
1: Yeah, I think Hitler was pretty far gone by that time, so it, it, it didn't matter. Um, so this is in the this is in the uh, early to mid nineteen forties. Yeah. Um, if he was in, in Russia, was, was he, uh, so this is interesting. You mentioned he was an astrologer. Yeah. Because that's a sacred science. That's not just, uh, a psychic, uh, clarity. That's, uh, using the, the stars and the planets and so yeah, forth and right. so on to actually come up with, uh, pretty accurate in some cases predict, uh, anything else in terms of Mother Russia. Of course, he would have to be very careful what he said uh about uh anything else I- any of the leadership
0: <laughs> um well, how do you mean
1: well i mean any other uh uh forecasting by this uh oh, well, i'm
0: afraid i don't know of any other forecasts He,
1: he must okay. must, have made, must have
0: made a lot of oh yeah i think he i think he at one point i think he went to the uh, went to the states and um, made a prediction. Oh, yeah, he made he predicted the death, he predicted the assassination of Robert Ken- of uh, Jack Kennedy and Robert Kennedy. Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: So he, did he come out of the States uh, probably after the Second World War, like in the yes. like, early, early yes.
0: well, 60s? Yeah, by the time he was established in Moscow. Oh, that's I
1: fascinating. Think. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, as we come to our time here, uh, Chris, I'm really interested in uh, what is known as the land of the white water. Oh yes, and that's, hypo, that's hyper. That's uh, hyperborea, right? No, no, that's different from hyperborea. Talk about the uh, the land of the uh, white water, because this is a a, a a small portion of your book, and I, I didn't get into the details of it. But what makes it so unique? Well, this is this is.
0: <clears throat> This is another of those egregores, the, the notion of a faraway never-never land, mm. um, accessible, ge- generally inaccessible, but accessible for those who are worthy to access it. It appears to have, the, the, the legend of Bialavodje appears to have arisen as a result of the communities of what what were called old believers, because at, at one point the in the 17th century the Orthodox Church split, and uh, as, as a result of a, a reform in the the mainstream of the Orthodox Church, uh, a, a group split off, calling themselves the old believers, and there were th- thousands of, thousands of these old believers, and they were very severely persecuted, so they. Fled to remote areas, and there was a a report that one group of these old believers had taken refuge in a a country called Bielovodje that was somewhere in the somewhere in the far east, and so this this legend of, of Bielovodje took hold, and it's become a kind of it's become a theme like. Shall we say, um, Shangri-La?
1: Hmm.
0: Shangri-La, yeah, a mythical place that may may or may not be completely mythical. And um, there's, a, I, I mentioned the, the paintings of uh, Hyperborean scenes. There's a whole other series of paintings about Bielavodji. And, uh, and in fact, in, in my a book, I included a a mural on the side of a, a tower block in in Omsk de, depicting Yelovogye and there's a, there's a, a television series television drama series about Yelovogye
1: is hyperborea like a russian atlantis yeah is, it, you could is it is it like a sophisticated ancient place where perhaps uh our ancient ancestors uh, migrated after some bit i mean is is it kind of i mean because you know atlantis is according to plato is destroyed in this horrific event yeah and and the survivors uh, settle in S- uh, central america south america and portions yeah. of europe what what's the what's the what in a nutshell because we don't have a lot of time what is the the story of hypergem well, Hy- well, so some people think that hyperborea
0: and Atlantis were the same place, somewhere beyond the Pillars of Hercules, in other words, the,
1: yeah. the Strait,
0: of, Strait of Gibraltar,
1: right. so
0: somewhere out in the Atlantic, whereas Hyperborea was supposed to be located in the Arctic region. And there there are various theories about when it existed and ex- exactly what it
1: what it was like. Let me stop you right there, Chris. What was yeah. the... Is it the, I mean, because Atlantis apparently is 9,500 uh, BC. Uh, yeah. What's the date? What's the general date of uh, Hyperborea?
0: There are, all, there are all sorts of different theories about that. There, there was um, the, an Indian writer, um, Tilak, writing in the early 20th century. He wrote, he wrote a book called The Arctic Home in the Vedas where he finds evidence in the, the Vedic scriptures for the, for there having been a, a hyperborea. And he places it as early as 40,000 BC.
1: 40,000, okay.
0: Yeah, others would place it around maybe 10,000 or 8,000. And there are various theories about who the hyperboreans were, but it is essentially, the, the theory is that there was a temperate zone, a small temperate zone in the middle of the ice, where this civilization developed. And the, the Russians are, as I say, very keen on this idea, and think think of themselves as the
1: the real heirs of the, the, the Hyperboreans. The, the, the descendants of the Hyperboreans. Um- Uh, Would you say that the Hyperboreans were, and you're saying it feels like it's the same as Atlantis, highly sophisticated, had been developing a science and a society for thousands and thousands of years? No. And and I'm curious to get your take on this. Following this big, horrific flood that destroyed most of the world, the biblical Mm -hmm. flood, yeah, there was the Quetzalcoatls and the Veracochas of the Mar- Americas. Yeah, were there some of the saviors from the Hyperboreans uh, who came and recultivated uh, Europe?
0: Uh, well, that's one theory, yes.
1: Oh, really? Okay, well, that's curious. <laughs> well, yeah, that yeah. I mean, because when I think of uh, a Soviet or uh, uh, Russia you know the thing about the um Baricoches and the savior gods which are the quequals are they're, they're caucasian red red hair with beards and very tall um, which could be northern Europeans so i'm well, curious yes. i'm curious about your take on that the canary islands the um what what are they called
0: i I, I forget now but the the original inhabitants of the Canaries before the, before the Spaniards came, who were, were also tall, fair-skinned, uh, fair-haired, fair fair or red-haired, um, and very, very northern-looking. So they,
1: they could be another example. The book's called Occult Russia, Pagan, Esoteric, and Mystical Traditions. My guest today has been Christopher McIntosh. He's coming to us from northern Germany. Um about ten years ago, I was receiving uh emails from a a, a Russian uh writer on the mm. Kola Peninsula, uh Bridge. interior Russia. Yeah. And what he sent me, and I'm curious about your take on this, is what he believed was a megalithic city. Mm. Yeah. And his team had gone in and taking photographs of monstrous, multi-ton stones stacked on top of each other, uh, yeah. what they call today um, uh, dolmen, where you yeah, have a, yeah, a roof and sides of a of a, and this was something that he had promised to, to to release more information, and that's almost a decade ago. Yeah, I have not heard anything from him or or anything about this uh, Kola Peninsula discovery do you have any data on that or is 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 the Kola Peninsula kind of a a known yes yes yes. Type yes of ancient activity that that the archaeologists in Russia kind of have have not really pursued because of whatever reason
0: well no they they have pursued it it's it's um there have been several archaeological expeditions there the I think the, the first one was around the 1920s after the revolution, there was a man called Alexander Bachenko who went there and spent about two years uh, investigating the archaeological remains. And uh, as as your friend said, he found all kinds of things like pyramids, the the remains of paved roads, labyrinths, all, all kinds of things. Wow! Yeah, and um, there, there there were much later, more more recently. I mean, after after the fall of communism, there have been other expeditions to that area and have, that have found similar things. And there's also um, an island in the Arctic Ocean, the, the island of Champ, where some extraordinary spheres have been discovered: stone spheres perfectly formed, perfect spheres, varying in size from about the size of a tennis ball to that it's difficult to think that they could have been formed by nature. Yeah. So, so the, the question is, um, uh, who made them and why? Mm. So that's, that's a great mystery.
1: Do you know why um, we we don't hear more about the Kola Peninsula? Because the photographs I saw were of what appeared to be, for lack of a better term, kind of a civic center of a city, where we have yeah. megalithic walls, we have obvious carved stones.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. And,
1: and and building foundations and things like that. And then all of a sudden, it's like lights out, no more communication, no more. Did the, do you, you think the government maybe squelch that research or what? No,
0: I, I don't think so. I think it's, I think it's, it's well known. I think, um, one of the reasons why it's not so well known in the West is that most of the material
1: is in Russian. Ah, uh, okay. So maybe that's just, just, we don't have the same
0: probably if you go into into the internet and google um cola peninsula you'll you'll find you'll find some information on it
1: okay yeah i i i would love to know who's who's out there or if any major papers are written about that site uh or books (laughs) (laughs) because boy it was it was pretty amazing hey as we conclude chris i'm really curious um you, the great the psychic Edgar Casey, said that uh, 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 Russia at some point uh, will be kind of a, a, a renaissance or it will be the hope uh, of the world. Uh-huh. Yeah. Talk a little bit about what he saw and where, where we're at right now in uh, Russia. Of course, it's, it's a difficult, difficult time to be
0: talking about Russia. But, um, I mean, wars come and go, and and governments come and go, but the spirit Mm -hmm. of a people remains. And so what did Casey have in mind? Well, there have been various predictions about Russia, and, uh, for, for example, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said something like that that Russia had of all countries, Russia had the strongest will. And I think, when I when I think when I think about that statement, I think maybe maybe that, that Casey had something similar in mind. Because what it, what is the source of the vital will of a nation? It is the inherited traditions culture, inherited values, shared myths and shared history and so on. That that is, that is the source from which a, a nation derives its strength and will. Now um, in in the West we're, we're in the process of choking off that wellspring and whereas in Russia it, in Russia it's still strong. And so I I think that's where the, I think that's where where the hope is going to come from.
1: I mean, but with this political, uh, as an an example, I mean this political system that they have, where Putin just keeps placing himself uh, in this presidential role, Mm. and no matter what bad decisions he makes, people have to kind of follow along including these oligarchs these billionaire oligarchs that have to, mm-hmm. you know uh so it, 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 what you write about it is feels just like such an undercurrent from what we know you know about these people yeah well i think i think it's a um it's something that's there in potential okay wonderful uh yeah. this book just came out in uh december i saw it on uh amazon and you can check it out there, Occult Russia. And I want to mention that Chris McIntosh has a website. It's uh, net. And uh, I think uh, we were mentioning before the start of the program that that's where you keep a lot of data and your uh, other research. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, that's excellent. Uh, Chris also has a Facebook page, an Instagram profile. And I imagine that if you go to his uh, website, osgard.net, you can find access uh, to those there. What, what what's your prediction on this uh, on the future of, uh, of of Russia and its people, Chris? Can you give us a sense of uh, what we can? Things aren't looking good. I mean, things oh, are not not looking. I'm, good. I'm not an astrologer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, All right. So so I hes- hesitate to make a prediction but um I I'm, I'm hopeful let's let's put it that way. I, I'm hopeful that um when when eventually this conflict comes to an end that um we can look forward to a a, a harmonious coexistence with the
1: Russians that would be good. Yeah. 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 Right. Chris McIntosh, thank you. Uh, much luck on Occult Russia, and I appreciate your time. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. I didn't mention it. Uh, the book Occult Russia by Christopher McIntosh is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Or your favorite bookstore. Or you can actually go to Simon & Schuster and order it directly if you prefer to do that. I don't think the shipping's free, though. That's the problem. You know, a lot of people are not happy with Amazon. They feel that they uh, dominate the market. They hurt the little guy, so forth and so on. But, you know, the more we're busy, the more we're... uh, Occupied by living, we have kids, we have relationships, we have, you know, we have a lot of things going on. Amazon Prime is without a doubt one of the best programs I've ever encountered. And, you know, I'm like everybody else, I, I want to support the local guys and gals and businesses. But when everything's free, when you become a Prime member, they ship it for free. And when I had my health crisis, you know, I had my heart attack. I couldn't, you know, I was supposed to be laid up for a couple of weeks. I I worked with Amazon, which owns Whole Foods out here in North Cal, Northern California. They brought the food to the door, day and night. I mean, I think they dropped off my first bag of a uh, couple of bags of groceries. It was like 3 a.m. I ordered it, and it came like four hours later. <laughs> I was shocked, but it was wonderful. I had my fresh fruit, I had my oatmeal, my eggs. I even ordered a piece of salmon and it came vacuum packed. It was wonderful. So, I am a big advocate. And you know, these guys have it down, they have delivery services. And if you're a Prime member, I mean, Prime's not free, it's like a hundred and I think it's 150 a year. But divide that up over 5 mo- uh 12 months and it's pretty good. L- listen to me, I'm kind of like blowing my horn about Amazon, but when I get my books, they come from there, when I get uh items and it's just really amazing. And that being said, I think eventually a lot of businesses that aren't as efficient as Amazon will really be challenged, so Hey, I want to remind you that we do tours, and uh, Destiny is part of the Earth Ancients family of programs. There's Earth Ancients, there's Destiny. There's Earth Ancients Special Edition, the archives. If you haven't heard that, I think you'll like it. But we do tours every year. We try to do at least two. We have a tour coming up in May, which is the Grand Egyptian Tour. I think we're almost full. we got a couple of spaces maybe we can squeeze you in. That is May 2nd to the 14th that we meet in Cairo, and that's gorgeous. That is amazing, and that is all-inclusive. In In other words, once you get on the plane and you get there, everything's covered. It's amazing. I really want to mention this new tour with Dr. Edwin Barnhart. It is the ancient Mexico tour of Tabasco and Chiapas, I was just talking to Jen Deo, our uh, archaeologist, and I think she's going to join us, but we're not sure. We're going to this museum, the Leventa Museum, that has these monstrous megalithic altars. It has the most famous of the uh, volcanic basalt sculptures. It has probably the best collection of um, Olmec Sculptures in the world And I'm really looking forward to that That's the first day The second day we get on a bus We drive for a couple of hours And we go to Palenque We're there for about a day and a half If not more And Ed actually did A great deal of surveying there We're going to get a private tour from a guy Who knows the place like the back of his hand And that's going to be fun then we're going to see some sites That I haven't been to before and these are some of the bigger um, Mayan sites that are in Chiapas. This very, very uh, famous area of Chiapas, and that's going to be amazing. So hey, come out and join us. That's November 10th through the 17th. It's only seven days. It's the week. Like I said, you fly into Veracruz, and then you fly out from Veracruz on the 17th. Amazing tour, amazing uh, insight. It's all covered. All your food is covered. And come out and join us. For more information on any of the Earth Agents tour, go to earthancients.com forward slash tours, T-O-U-R-S. And I try to really make them as reasonable as possible because, look, we're all trying to save a buck. And uh, Egypt's amazing. Mexico is always great fun. And they are very, very reasonable. If you have any questions, if you want, you know, if you got something you want to talk about, Send me an email, send it to EarthAncients number four, the letter U at gmail.com. Earthancients4U at gmail.com. Say, hey Cliff, this is my story on this tour. I want to go, but <laughs> and I get those kind of, of emails. Hey Cliff, I got this issue, I got that issue. I'll I'll address it and we'll we'll uh, we'll work it out. Uh, I I I made these as reasonable, as easy to get to as possible. Because I know, I know how it is when you're working, you got family, but you want to go. So I try to make it as easy as, as I can to get you out. So earthancients.com forward slash tours, T-O-U-R-S. All right, that's it for this program. I want to thank my guest today, Christopher McIntosh coming from Northern Germany. As always, the team of Ruth Thomas. Mark Foster and everyone who makes this thing run. You guys rock. And I mean that. You guys actually rock. All right. Take care. Be well. And we will talk to you next time.